From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. This episode of Postmortem is sponsored by RLJE Films. After receiving a mysterious letter, a woman travels to a desolate island town and soon becomes trapped in a living nightmare. The new horror film Off Season is now playing in select theaters on demand and on digital. Perry Nemiroff of Collider calls it a beach town chiller with a crushing sense of dread and a magnetizing lead performance from Jocelyn Donahue. Sight and Sound applauds writer-director Mickey Keating for conjuring the spirits of Lucio Fulci, John Carpenter, and H.P. Lovecraft for a retro-layered reimagining of the myth of Persephone. Watch Off Season now wherever you buy movies. Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley. I'm Mick Garris, and this is the fun size edition of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Well, actually, you can ask producer Joe Russo, who will ask me your questions in your stead. That's right. I'm the filter. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, Joe? I'm doing well, Mick. How are you? I'm very well, as always. Good. Good to hear. Uh, one I'd be like housekeeping note, I guess. Uh, coming up, we are going to have anniversary AMAs because uh, that's right. Next month, we celebrate two two big ones. Mick, you want to tell them about it? Yeah, well, they're two of my uh, Stephen King forays. Uh, Sleepwalkers will be celebrating its thirtieth anniversary, if you can believe that. And the Shining miniseries will be celebrating its 25th anniversary, both of which air, uh, came out in April of their respective years. So we are going to celebrate with some people who were instrumental in the making of those uh, projects. And um, so I think Joe is going to be recruiting your questions specific to those particular films. That's right. We're it's going to be a Mick Garris Appreciation Month, and uh, oh, I get to appreciate myself. April right. April is Mick Garris <laughs> Appreciation Month, and we will be uh, calling out for questions for The Shining and Sleepwalkers specifically. So keep an eye out on your 
social media radio waves for that. Uh, but until then, Mick, we've got a bunch of great questions this week. Shall we dive in? We always do. Yes, let's dive. All right. Constantine asks, do you have any memories of working with Pierce Brosnan that you'd care to share with us? Oh, that was 2011. I don't remember something that long ago. <laughs> no, actually, it was one of the great experiences I've had with an actor. Um, I'm a huge fan of his. Uh, and I can tell you a couple things about it. First of all, was getting him in the first place. Yeah. Uh, Sony was the studio that, was, that we were making the miniseries with. This was Bag of Bones in, in 2011. It was on A&E. So they went to his agents at CAA uh, with an offer. And they laughed at that offer and said, no, he gets this much money. The offer they made was a quarter of that. Wow. So they went back and forth a while. And then they said, okay, okay, you've got us. We'll do this much. And it was half of what his quote was. And they just laughed and said, no, no, uh, we aren't interested. So they came back, you know, very, very serious. And okay, all right, you've got us over a barrel. We'll give you this much. And it was three quarters. And they said, no, we told uh, you what the price is. Uh, this is what it's going to be. <laughs> and eventually they ended up paying the price, which was well worth it, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's a movie star. And I had seen him in Matador and saw a side of him I had never seen mm -hmm. before. Uh, and it's a great movie. It is a great movie. And uh, and his performance. From friend of uh, friend of the podcast, uh, Richard Shepard. Shepard, thank you. Yeah. Richard, Richard Shepard directed The Matador. And it's if you haven't seen it, it's a very quirky, hilarious, wonderful movie with a really unique performance by Pierce. Yep. So the idea of getting him was exciting to me. I didn't think it was going to work because Sony was playing those games. Uh, but the fact that he responded to the material and was interested if his agents saying if the price was right. So... Yeah. We, we got over that hurdle and working with him was a total pleasure. Uh, he, he is so well equipped. He knows what he's doing. He is an actor that does not need or particularly look for much creative input because he puts a lot of homework into what he does and he really knows what he's doing. He's been doing it a long time. And, yeah. you know, there would be times where I obviously would have some input just because of context in terms of the entire show, but he's in virtually every scene in Bag of Bones. Um, but uh, he was a gentleman. He was really funny, very confident. You know, uh, I could not be happier with that performance. And there were some things that were kind of tender uh, that I was a little nervous about touching upon because in the show, his wife is killed. Mm. And he had lost his wife real life, yeah. in real life. And so you could see the pain that he's expressed during the, the movie that you could just, you could tell how real it was and where it came from. Yeah. And it was something uh, we did not discuss at all before shooting that day, because I didn't, I knew it didn't need to be discussed. Right. He, he, he lives it. He knows it. He knows he that. lived it. He tapped into it. And it is, it's a kind of scene I'd never seen him do before. And it's really, really powerful. 
Uh, yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and he's just a great guy and a great actor. And I'm hoping that one day we'll be able to do it again. I hope so too. Uh, a fun little follow-up just for my own edification. Where, uh, where does he rank on your uh, list of James Bonds? <laughs> well, I'd have to put him at number one. You'd have to put him at number one, right? <laughs> no, I mean, there are some good Bonds, you know. Yeah. Uh, Sean Connery's hard to fan make? I, We've never really talked about Bond much. Do you watch Bond uh, movies? Yes and no. I, there are some that I like a lot. You yeah. know, obviously Sean Connery was the first and, and great. Um, the Roger Moore Bonds, I'm not so crazy about. Um, <laughs> Daniel Craig is a great Bond. Yeah. Uh, and Pierce is a great Bond. But, yeah. you know, they, they, their attitudes are so kind of primordial uh, in terms of the female characters and the like. Sure. That it's, it's really hard to appreciate it. And when everything is undercut by a really bad pun, <laughs> I, I don't, that's not my favorite kind of, uh, uh, of movie, but there are some great ones and yeah. undeniably great. And yep. the opening sequences with no CGI are just uh, always, uh, get your balls in your throat when you watch absolutely it. absolutely yeah. i uh for me there are no bad bonds so oh well there you go okay yeah i'm, I'm easy i'm not gonna hold right here over the coals uh richard bell asks do you think censors should be genre specific well whether i think they should be or not they are um there is a great chauvinism against horror movies uh when it comes to the mpaa mm. i've had my experiences with them sleepwalkers had to go back to the mpaa five times before it got an r with now was that movie. about was that because of sexuality or because of gore um it was mostly sexuality but also yeah. gore because um, they tend to be things... a little bit more uh, prudish when it comes to sexuality, uh, yeah, as, well, as, as America tends to be. There uh, was a scene that was meant to be shot without a cut. And just to cover myself, I'm lucky that I added a couple of shots to this, but it's a scene where the camera starts on a mirror, goes down to see clothing puddled on the floor, oh, I know pans, up, pans up to the <laughs> foot of the bed and up the length of the bodies of mother and son naked having sex and then you see their true form reflected in the mirror of their sleepwalkers cat people form yeah well the movement of the butt going up and down of uh brian kraus <laughs> raised the ire of the mpaa things you've seen in movies that aren't horror movies that don't have stephen king's name in the title sure numerous times but when it's in a horror movie that changes everything so there is, and that was back in the nineties, but that attitude still uh, plays true. Although since the streamers have become dominant in, in movie viewing, it seems like it has become a bit more liberalized over the last several years. Um, but being genre specific, you know, I, I'm not opposed to a ratings uh, board that just gives you guidance. And that was what it was originally intended to be. The original was uh, uh, G, M, R, and X. Mm -hmm. uh, that became changed around quite a bit. But just so parents know or people know what they're in for, that's one thing. But it became a slot into which films were made 
for which films were made. You go, okay, we are making an R-rated movie, so we're going to do this. We're making a PG-13 movie, so we want to do this. You know, if it were rated after the fact and just rated on the merits of the movie, rather than being such a marketing uh, device, it, uh, it would make more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two two things of note. I still, still, I don't know. We've reflected on this in the past. Can't believe that Ryuhei Kitamura's segment in Nightmare Cinema didn't get us flagged by the MPAA. Amazed, uh, amazed, amazed by that. We we <laughs> had that conversation at the time many times. Yep. There's no way. So go ahead and go all out so that we have stuff that we're able to cut, Ryuhei. Yeah, yeah. And then and then they didn't make us cut anything, which yeah. was wild. Slaughtering uh, children in a church was that yes. never would have gone in 1992. Priests, priests <laughs> and nuns fucking and all sorts of good yeah. stuff. You know, yeah, so, but no nudity. No nudity. That's true. That is true. That that, that probably would have been the, the thing that you know incited their ire. Uh, yeah. There's there's a British movie that uh, came out last year. I don't know if you saw it. That called Censor. Have you seen? Oh it? yeah, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I was wondering if you did. It felt like it'd be up your alley. Um, yeah, it's it's a very good film, and it's also very adult. And by that, I don't mean sexual, but it's a horror movie that's not aimed at a teenage franchise. And uh, it's a very psychologically driven character who is affected by her job as a censor. Yeah, yeah. And it was uh, recommended to me by friend of the podcast, Rob Savage, the director of Host. One of his friends did it. And uh yeah, I mean it, it's it's pretty it's pretty cool. Uh, it's on Hulu, I yeah, believe. If you want to check it out, it's very um, good. Highly recommended. All right, Randy asks: Is there any style, trope, or aesthetic of the '70s and '80s horror you'd like to see reemerge in the 2020s? Well, it's kind of happening a little bit. You know, uh, Ty West's new film X is very much a '70s style thing. Well, what? was great about the 70s was there wasn't much interest in franchise. These were filmmakers establishing themselves with films that were very much of the filmmaker's personality. You know, you had Toby Hooper doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre and doing it on a dime, you know, no money, but lots of talent, a great cast shooting in Texas on these great locations, these vivid, vivid, scenes and sequences you'd never seen before. Um, <clears throat> just the idea that each film stood on its own. It didn't have a number in the title. It was not intended to be a continuing series uh, of, of marketing capabilities. Right, sure. <clears throat> but aside from that, also the idea of doing it for real. You know, stunts were real. Uh, makeup effects were real things were, there was a veracity that, you know, I, I think CGI is a great tool and used mm -hmm. correctly, mm -hmm. and it's done more and more correctly these days. It's flawless. It's, uh, there is no transparency to it at all. It feels just as good as real physical effects, but for actors and for filmmakers and the like to actually be doing it on the set where people are touching it and holding it and making things happen, uh, as opposed to looking at a green tennis ball on a mic stand uh, <laughs> and having a green screen behind you and all that sort yeah. of thing. Um, you know, those are things I'd love to see. Just the idea that an original idea could come out as a movie in theaters and people would come and see it 
uh, was was exciting. Where you know the seventies were was where George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and John Carpenter and George Romero Romero started in sixty eight. But but these were people who had real identities, very personal styles. Cronenberg, you know, these are people who started in the seventies at a time where they weren't making the same thing over and over. Uh, right. Even stylistically, there was it was a great time because the studios didn't understand our genre in particular, not that they do today, but uh, at least they feel they do today. But at that time, there had been such an upheaval in the movie business, you know, when, when they put out uh, in the late 60s, they put out movies like Dr. Doolittle thinking that's the big Hollywood success. Right. And then something like Friday the 13th comes out and makes a fortune, you know, <laughs> that was a, a paramount release of an independently made movie. And so you, that did become a franchise, but sure, nobody ever imagined it would be the first time, but it was so successful. So there was just an adventurousness to the 60s, 70s, 80s that, that um, has not been as popular, but is on the rise again. And I think that's thanks to streamers more than it is to studios. I, I think that's true uh, to, to some degree. I think, uh, you know, I think this, the streamers are very data driven. So I think there's a lot of uh, creative oversight that comes from what they believe works for their specific platform. Oh yeah, way too much creative oversight. They yeah. really, but they but at are, least they're making original titles. Yeah, sure. and they're yeah. picking up original titles. Yep. So yes. it's just yes. a matter of finding them. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, okay. Next, we have MJU who writes. What was your experience like on Brutal Massacre, a comedy? I was an extra in the film during the scene at the horror convention and briefly got to meet you after the shoot. Well, that was my only day of the shoot. Uh, and <laughs> it's it a good was thing fun. you got to meet him then, MJU. That's uh, right. As I recall, <laughs> it was very, very cold. They brought me in for one day of shooting and David Naughton was in the scene with me and Tony Timpone from Fangoria was playing himself. We were all playing ourselves at huh. the horror convention. And uh, it's it's a fun movie. It's a small movie. Um, I had a really good time and it's great not having any responsibility <laughs> on <laughs> yeah, as a producer director. I mean, as an actor in quotes, uh, I was playing myself right. and just responding to questions from the audience. So a lot of it was ad-libbed there was a basic script, but a bunch of it was just uh, off the cuff questions and answers that you would get on a panel at a convention. So it was, it was really fun, but walking outside the set was cold. Where did they shoot it? Um, boy, I don't even remember what city it was, but it was on the East Coast in winter. Oof, yeah, yep. It can be. I, uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember that, but yeah. no, I, I would probably block that out of my mind too. <laughs> I, I try to block out living in Connecticut, so you know. There you go. <laughs> All right, Carlos. You kept your writes, area code, though. That's true. I did keep my area code. Some some things uh, never change. All right, Carlos writes. You worked as a story editor on the Mirror Mirror episode of Amazing Stories, directed by Martin Scorsese. How was your experience working with him? Um, I didn't work closely with him. I worked a little with him, but it, there are some 
pretty fascinating stories about that episode because it was originally written by Joe Minion, who wrote After Hours, which Scorsese had recently directed. And that's right. why he chose this script. But as good as the script that Joe had written was, it was very far afield from what NBC and what Amblin and everybody else wanted from that. Mm. So as story editor, my job was to do rewrites, write scenes that after the original writer has uh, performed his uh, contracted tasks, his his draft and, and two rewrites, the rest would go to the staff writer. In this case, often it would be me as the sole story editor on the show. Right. In this case, Stephen and Amblin and everybody wanted a page one rewrite. Wow. And so I did a page one rewrite, but the producers on the show who were great guys, uh, Josh Fal uh, John Falsey and Joshua Brand, um, they said to me, you know, we're real team players here. You could, if you want, put in to the uh, arbitration of, at the Writers Guild to get credit, but you know, we're a team here. Now, I should have, because <laughs> yeah. I would love my name to have been on, on the Scorsese the, thing. The Scorsese sure. <laughs> and produced by Spielberg, directed by Scorsese, and written by Joe Minion and Mick Garris. That would have been a great credit, but I did not pursue that. And it's fine after all, you know, when I've, sure. <clears throat> I've got you, you, credits you, you, on, you did, on you did okay. You did okay without the credit. Uh. <laughs> I got credits on 10 of those episodes out of 44. Sure. So that was awfully nice. But um, another interesting thing about it was I had written a car chase in a parking structure into the script, an action mm -hmm. scene. And Scorsese actually said to me, you know, I'm not really good at this kind of stuff. So I wouldn't mind taking this out. You know, could we take this out? I'm really not good at doing action scenes. And it was like huh. one of our greatest filmmakers of all time. Wow. Uh, saying that is like when Stephen King said to me, you know, I'm not very good at endings. Yeah, <laughs> when we right. did a rewrite on the ending <laughs> of Sleepwalkers. So I'm sure I'm sure Martin Scorsese's worst car chase is still better than most filmmakers car chases. <laughs> no so. kidding. But what a treat. <laughs> this this was the first thing of mine that I'd had shot. The wow. first script I'd ever written, even though my name wasn't on it. I didn't know that. Oh, it. that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Even though my name wasn't on it, Martin yeah. Scorsese was directing Sam Waterston in huh. this right show right. and they're speaking all of the lines they're speaking, I wrote. Wow. And it was amazing. Wow. And it was from wow. a story by Steven Spielberg. And so it had a little bit of before I'd ever met King, it's about uh, a horror writer. And so mm. we put a little bit of King into his character. And uh, it was it was a great experience. I mean, you know, I think they set the bar pretty high, huh? So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, one of the amazing things about working on that show was I wrote scripts that were produced by Steven Spielberg uh, that were directed by Joe Dante, Peter Hyams, Bob Zemeckis, Martin Scorsese, myself. You know, it was uh, an amazing, amazing experience. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, to have that be the, the first ones out of the gate for, for you as a, a writer is... Yeah. It's pretty special, Mick. That was my film <laughs> school, and it was earn while you learn. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. Ian asks, 
Was there a connection between your mummy project with Clive Barker and Hellraiser? No. No. <laughs> Quite simply, this was an entirely unique situation and storyline that Clive had come up with that was not at all uh, associated with the characters or ideas in Hellraiser. Not even like a Tarantino golden apple cigarettes kind of. Uh, <clears throat> no, nothing issue. like that. Nothing. All right. Like well, that. there you go. So well, that, way to that break was Ian's heart, Mick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> way to break Ian's heart. Uh, sorry, uh, well, that Ian. Was a, that was a sorry, Ian. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe in your next Clive uh, project, there can be some uh, some some callbacks. Well, uh, that may be sooner than later. Ooh. All right. The majestic dead. Is there any? <laughs> <laughs> majestic dead asks. Is there any horror film you've ever had a physical reaction to? For example, seeing James Caan's ankle break in Misery makes me ill every time. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's one at the top of the list. I mean, sure. I, one thing that's interesting that I've learned about working and socializing with people within the genre is they're wusses. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh-huh. They the side of blood, you know, most of the genre filmmakers I've known over the years are squeamish. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, I guess it's one reason that they're so good at getting those elements on film and out into the <laughs> atmosphere. But um, yeah, I mean, even Fresh, watching uh, Mimi Cave's film Fresh, there were definitely moments of that way. Oh, no or uh, Dead Ringers from David Cronenberg has some quite memorable times where, yow! Audition. Audition. Anyone? Is, is, <laughs> uh, and that's one of the reasons I hired Miike-san for yeah. Masters of Horror. So yeah, I think I'm not alone in being a genre filmmaker who does respond oh going to a movie with john landis if there's something that happens he screams (laughs) he Uh, (laughs) he reacts in a big way and uh, that's awesome it's really fun yeah yeah no me too i uh i sometimes even like the you know going to the the saw movies and the like they can be they can be a little much for for me i'm not uh you know the gore the gore is probably the thing that uh, because it's real you know yeah like, gore gore can can really happen so i think it definitely uh it, it gets under my skin and makes it crawl a little bit more than you know a thing that goes bump in the night per and se. that's the intent you know uh, yeah. um it, that it started with uh, Shane andalou you know with uh salvador dali <clears throat> slicing the eye and yeah like sure. it's entirely that's body horror yeah. that's the origin of body horror and uh, you know it's something that is potent and it's the easiest way to get a reaction from somebody is to rend their bodies yeah yeah i'm 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 a big jumper too though like i i i mean i even i admitted it in that that fangoria article that came out a week yeah. ago. uh you know, like I when that that scene in uh, Haunting of Hill House where she pops out of the backseat of the car, I jumped out of my chair and Crystal just started laughing at me. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's the so, way it should be. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a I'm a big softy too. But uh, all right, Woody Woodpickle wants to know <laughs> if there's ever been a movie you got an early look at that you were surprised didn't achieve greater success. 
Um, you know, there, there've been a lot of them, but you come to the point where you don't necessarily anticipate success. One of the first movies that I saw on a, uh, an unfinished video before it came out in theaters was reanimator mm. and watching that, you know, when it came out, it wasn't a big success. It was after it came out on media on, on uh, home video on VHS that it really became something that launched Stuart Gordon's illustrious career. Yeah. But that was something I saw and I thought, holy shit, this is amazing. Um, and, but whenever you see something that unique, you don't expect it to be a big theatrical success it, back then more so than today. Sure. But, um, you know, getting to see some movies in advance as we do because of this show, because of filmmakers we have on, yeah. like Mimi Cave, seeing Fresh was something I knew would be terrific, but it's Hulu and hard to measure its success. Sure. And now, um, you know, talking with other filmmakers on this show who are young and new or have new projects that we get to see in advance, I'm always rooting for them. So, it's often the case that they don't achieve theatrical success that you hope for, but it's, it's just much more difficult to find that in the world of theatrical features today. I agree, but one follow-up question, because uh, I don't think you guys knew each other at that point. How did you end up with a preview tape of Reanimator? <laughs> a friend of a friend gave it to me. Huh. And it was not finished. The music was not on there. Uh, and it was like, holy shit, what is this movie? <laughs> and it was longer. And, you know, it didn't have all of the punch. But I thought this is really going to be something special. Then when I saw it finished, it was a total revelation. You know, I went to opening day in the movie theaters when you could see a Stuart Gordon movie in the theaters. And uh, I just couldn't believe the leaps and bounds it had made. And, and it drove home to me before I was be, uh, a filmmaker myself, the importance of post-production because it completely re-established what that movie was. You mean it reanimated it? <laughs> you might say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Brandon asks, can you explain the popularity of A24 movies like Hereditary, The Witch, <laughs> Witch uh, Midsommar, uh, in the genre of horror? I really love them, but what makes them more popular than other indie releases in the genre? Or does it come down to the talent of the filmmakers that A24 chooses to work with? Well, yeah, I think it, it certainly comes down to that. I think A24 is a company that has very good taste. Not all of the movies they release are home runs, but uh, there's nothing new about that. They're usually interesting, though. They're always interesting, and they do choose to do work on the more adult side of the genre. Yeah. So they have cred as an art house distributor as well as horror. So I hate the term elevated horror because it's insulting to the term horror. Yeah. Um, but they do horror that is intended for grown up consumption and is about adults. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It's about strong ideas. And they have, they find filmmakers who have an actual voice of their own. Yeah, I was just I was going to say, it seems like their mandate is more finding a filmmaker they're interested in working with and embracing their ideas more so than uh, 
trying to fill a specific mandate on their slate of oh we need a, a horror movie so find find one you know yeah and and they they pick up stuff at the uh, festivals. festivals all yep. the time mm-hmm. but they'll pick up a movie from some uh, a festival like hereditary uh and and then they'll do the next movie by ari aster yeah um, yeah that's and that's that's exactly what they did with hereditary yeah and so, so. that's they have good taste but they're looking for the highest denominator rather than the lowest common denominator. Right. You know, they know that there is a market for intelligent adult horror. And they've really, even though they distributed other kinds of movies as well, that's where they found their success and seem to be yeah. focusing on uh, in a much more serious way. You know, them and IFC Midnight and, mm-hmm. and there are some other places that they they really care about the quality of the movie and know that a movie is going to rise or fall on its quality in the case of an independent film especially yeah. more than anything else than marketing well it's kind of it's kind of almost like uh on the flip side like a marvel film you know what a marvel film is going to be right you know what a pixar film is going to be a24 is cultivating a specific type of personality that that fans have an awareness of and but not nearly not nearly so specific though no sure sure well but you just know you're going to get you're going to get a genre film that is intelligent and is interesting and is not like everything out there whereas you go to a marvel film right you get what you expect well agreed i mean apples to apples no but but yeah. the the idea that they're cultivating a brand and an awareness yes right yeah uh, gotcha yeah. agreed i'll give uh, you that all right thank <laughs> you twisted your arm uh gary writes if a family of four just dropped 50 dollars to see spider-man the chance of them seeing anything else that month might be slim but if a lower budget film was playing in the same theater with a ticket for say half the cost, I think the chances of them returning would be higher. Do you think theatrical release films could benefit by dictating their own ticket price? Well, that's just been started with the Batman. Uh, AMC is charging an average of $1.50 more per ticket. You know, I, I think that's a very slippery slope. People have tried to do this in the past, but the big movies help pay for the small movies to get a theatrical release. True. And uh, I think if you start saying, okay, here's a $5 movie and here's our $20 movie, it's going to make a mess of it. For one thing, the bookkeeping theaters have to maintain for each of those uh, films that they book into their chains is going to be separate. Um, The the perception of the public is uh, not going to be it's not necessarily going to be, oh, it's only $5. It can't be very good. Um, Oh, oh, I don't want to see a cheap movie. A movie should be judged on its quality, not on its budget. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I do think though um, a lot of the theater chains are offering, you know, these uh, the monthly memberships. I think you're, you're on the A list, AMC A list as well. I am indeed. No, I think that is, that is kind of the theater's olive branch, uh, to moviegoers is here's a, a cheaper way to go to the movies. You know, I, I think you're probably right. I think long-term they probably won't cut uh, the prices of movies in a significant enough way. Well, they're uh, not cutting any of them. They're only no, no, raising. No, I know, but I think, I think that's what, yeah. that's what Gary is after. I think he's, yeah. uh, he's looking for um, a discount, you know, 
Yeah. Uh, well, what what the what the theaters make their money on is not the ticket prices other than the big blockbusters. Mm-hmm. What they make their money on is the popcorn and soda and candy and all that stuff, which, you know, popcorn, I saw a stand-up comedian talking about, well, what does popcorn cost? Like eight cents a silo? And (laughs) they sell it for 10 bucks a bucket, you know? Yep. Yep. No, the profit margins on their concessions are insane um so yeah no so so and you you don't so i mean so but what did you think about i mean you know to me it's interesting because amc went the opposite way of what what gary is proposing they're 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 charging more for bigger movies well that's that's the problem nobody's going to cut a price they're going to raise a price right right you know i think history uh will show that that's never been the case yeah Uh, but the subscription idea has been very successful for AMC. Yep. You know, you buy a monthly subscription, you're going to buy concessions. Yep. Um, you can go up to three times a week. And, you know, if you've gone twice in one month, you've paid for your subscription and you're allowed sure. to go 12 times in a month. Which is a pretty incredible deal to be, to yeah. be especially in Los Angeles, where yeah, ticket absolutely. prices can be you know, 18 to 20 bucks easy. So, um, yeah. So, well, there you have it, Gary. Uh, probably not, not the direction you're going to want to see it go. Uh, but just being realistic. Yeah. yeah, But maybe look into those, uh, subscription plans. And there's always afternoon matinees. That's, that's right. That's, and and I think AMC has like a super deep discount Tuesdays as well. So, uh, there's, you know, look around and you can find cheap tickets basically. Uh, all right, Mick. Well, that wraps up this week's AMA. Well, thank you, Joe. And thank you to our audience. And if you're enjoying the show, or even if you're not, please rate us and uh, review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But if you're not, maybe don't leave a review. <laughs> well, I don't think you'd have gotten to the end of the show if you weren't enjoying it. I hope. Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, we want to be fair. We That's want right. honesty. Yeah. Uh, and you can send upcoming Ask Mick Anything questions to Mick on Twitter and Instagram at Mick Garris PM uh, or to me at Joe Russo Tweets or at Joe Russo Graham on Twitter and Instagram, respectively. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Mick. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.